All right, well, we're going to continue on here in the book of Genesis. We come to Genesis chapter 14. And as we look at this, there's a lot of this chapter that's full of hard-to-pronounce names, hard-to-pronounce cities that probably don't mean anything to most of us. So what I want to try and do is I want to give you enough feel of these names and these locations that you can have an appreciation for what's happening in, in this battle. It's the first mention of a war. So, you know, if you think, well, what's significant about chapter 14? First mention of a war. Uh, there's a, there's a, a man by the name of Melchizedek. How many of you have ever heard or read the name Melchizedek before? Okay, so we're going to be re- introduced to him here. There's first mention of Melchizedek, who is a, a foreshadowing of Christ. I think there's another foreshadowing in this chapter. And uh, you're going to have to just work with me on this a little bit. Israel was often corrected and chastened by other nations when they fell away. They also had victory over nations when they would come and invade um, when they were walking close with the Lord. And, And this is a repeated theme in Scripture. If you go through the Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you almost are like, got it, enough. Israel sins. Nations come in and overtake them. Israel repents and Israel obeys God and they throw off the shackles of other nations that would want to enslave them. And so this is a a repeated theme. And I think we get our our first foreshadowing of what it's going to be like for Israel. We're going to have Abraham who's walking with the Lord and Lot who's not. And they have two very different outcomes with an invading army. And it becomes a foreshadow of what Israel is going to go through in the ages to come with the Syria and the Moabites and uh, Babylon and the, I mean, all these different nations, the Persians that will come in and attack. So we'll see this. We're also going to see what do we do when a brother is taken captive. And um, so we'll take a look at these different themes. We begin there in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And you might want to just turn into the back of your Bible, you know those maps that you never use, and look at those maps, and and you might look and and get a feel for what's going on. Uh, It's basically all east of the Jordan where this is going to take place. So verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, and Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war. So these are all nations that are in the east. Okay, Eastern coalition is how we're going to refer to these guys. And they made war with Bera, king of Sedom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shem-Eber, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zoar. This is a Canaanite coalition. All these joined together in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea area. So um, there is a traditional view that all this took place south of the Dead Sea. Uh, That's kind of where I'm going to geographically walk through this. Some have said it's it's north of the Dead Sea. But uh, it seems like the overwhelming evidence is for this other place. But um, it's 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 an interesting study to get into. But anyways, you have these three nations. um, Actually, you have these four nations gathered in the east. If you're looking on that map, it's over in the area of Babylon. It's over in the area of Persia. It's those nations. They're traveling from a long distance to come and to have war there with these nations around the Dead Sea, um, part of the Promised Land. 
And uh, we keep on reading here in verses 4 through 7, 12 years. They served Kedar Laomer, and in the 13th year, they had enough. They rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedar Laomer, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtarosh Karnaim. That's up in the north. So if you're looking at a map, find the Sea of Galilee. Go to the right, which is east. You'd go up the hills, and you'd come into an area of um, the Golan Heights is how we often would think of it today, this region. But that's the, uh, the attack, the Rephaim there at Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zazum, Zozim in Ham, the Amim in Shava Karathim, and the Horites in the mountain, uh, in their mountain of Seir. Seir is where Esau and his descendants will inherit. This is that area where it's famous for its red sand and its red rocks, but also craggy rocks that are, um, they thought whoever was in this place, um, nobody could ever get us. And you know, we're like an eagle um, set up on a, a cliff. Who can come in and take care of us? This is the area of Petra, okay? So it's that region. So we've gone from the east where the, they originated from. They've headed west. They're up in the north. They're coming down from uh, Rephaim, and they're making their, ways all, making their way all the way down into the south of what is later known as Ammon and, and Moab. But who are the Rephaim, the first nation we find that they stop and they fight? What do we know of the Rephaim? They're the giants. Now remember in Genesis chapter 6, when we read that there were giants in those days, and then it added this little phrase, and what? Afterward. So they, they're, they're not only in the days of uh, Noah, excuse me, did I say Jonah? Not only in the days of Noah, um, but they are found afterwards as well. And this is one of those regions. This is a region where you may be more familiar with this, Og, king of Bashan. And this is a guy that has a really massive iron bed, like 13 feet long or something like that. And he's one of the, the last giants um, that is, is, is living, and we read of in the scriptures. So that's the region. So this army that's coming down, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say, this is a, a massive movement of people. It's a formidable uh, uh, army. They're taking over and killing giants. They're going into the most uh, protected areas, natural protected areas, and they're having victory. And so something uh, significant is taking place. Now, as we keep reading here, we're going to find out uh, that, that Lot is going to get caught up in this story. And that's really why we even read about this, is because Lot is going to be taken hostage. But this route that they take is modern-day Jordan, okay? And so you have the Sea of Galilee, you have the Dead Sea, you got the Jordan River, you have the mountains of Moab, but on top of these mountains is known as the King's Highway. You find this in Scripture. You find this in a lot of um, ancient writings about this reference to the King's Highway that runs through these this central mountain region, and it was a well-traveled area. And so you are probably most familiar with this route because when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were about to make their way to come down into the promised land, they had to take this king's highway. They came down and crossed the Jordan River and went over. So this is a well-known stretch of land 
We read it and it's like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. But just know, this is a main highway. Um, and really, even where Sodom and Gomorrah is, it was an intersection of another highway that was used for trade routes and all the rest. So this is, this is well-known information to anybody that would have been living at this time and reading it. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Um, we see that they come and they enforce this tribute, right? They've paid for 12 years. Um, but in the 13th year, they've said they have enough. In the 14th year, they come to reinforce their thumb on them and to get them to pay. And they're going to take a lot of spoils back to be punishment and to fund their campaign. So this is the occasion. This is the reason why they're fighting. And this is the reason why they're coming. Um, so it's quite a movement of nations. Again, the first recorded war in Scripture. Verses 8 through 10. We see that the Canaanite coalition is going to meet this e these eastern armies and the valley of Sidim, which is um, just south of the Dead Sea. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedar Leomer, king of Elam, titled king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five, in case you're just wondering what the math was there. Four kings from the east, five kings from Canaan. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. So this uh, northern coalition uh, army is coming down. Uh, the Eastern Coalition Army is coming down from the north. They're fighting. They're having victory as, as they go. As a matter of fact, as they travel, um, they keep on going all the way down. And if you look back just a couple of verses, I, I don't think I finished reading. Did I get to it? Yeah, in verse 6 it says, And the Horites and their mountains of Seir as far as El Paran. That is all the way down, if you, if you look on the map, all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, Eliot. And um, beautiful spot. They made it all the way down there. And then they do a 180 and they start coming back up. But they're going to come up through Kadesh Barnea, which is an important place as Israel comes out of Egypt. So they just basically come like this and they make a big loop and they're coming back up. As they come back up, that is where the five armies of, of Canaan are going to meet them there just south of the Dead Sea and the Valley of Sedeim. So this is the, the battle that's taking place. This is the way um, it is all set up. As they come, we read that, again, they have victory. They just kind of mow over them. So home field advantage, not so much. Five against four, Odds aren't really in their favor after all. They are getting routed. And what we read is that they begin to, uh, uh, they go to the area where it's full of these asphalt pits, and uh, some of them fell there. I want to bring your attention to this because this is so typical of, of what we find in some liberal scholarship as they say, okay, uh, the, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell there. And the remainder fled to the mountains. Well, if we just skip down to verse 17, we see, And the king of Sodom went out to me in the valley of Shava. That's Kidron Valley. So people say, look, you can't trust the Bible. And one verse it says that he died. And the next verse he's having a meeting with, uh, with Abram and Melchizedek. You know, what do you believe? 
And, and they'll make comments like that. And you're left there kind of going, oh, I don't know what to say and what to do. Well, there's a really good explanation for this. Actually, there's two possible explanations. One is, maybe the king did die and another king was appointed. Because they had to have somebody step in. They're in the middle of a battle. So that is a, a, a likely explanation. But here's another likely explanation. The word fell can also be translated take refuge or hide. So rather than falling as in dead, they were falling back and hiding. And where were they hiding? They're hiding in the asphalt pits. Okay, So they're going and they're just covering themselves in this black slime and trying to blend in. And this, you know, the mental picture that I get is when I was, when our family was living in Florida, behind the house, there was a sod farm. And when they would come and they would harvest the sod, the soil was as black, the dirt was as black as black can be. And whenever that happened, all of the kids in the neighborhood, we would go out there and we, there was always puddles of waters, Florida, and we would just get, we'd cake ourselves down with black mud. And then we'd go hide in this, these black fields and we'd have BB gun fights. I know that none of, your moms like, none of your moms like that. Kids don't do that. It's a bad idea. But that, when I think of these guys hiding out or falling back into these black pits covered with this, I'm thinking, yeah, I know, I know what you do. I know exactly what you're doing. It's great camouflage. You can't see in, the, in this you know, view. So either king died and another one was uh, replaced or they're just hiding out in this. But what they thought would be their advantage becomes a place where they actually fall. We don't read this in the text, okay? We don't find this here, so I'm acknowledging this. But what we see as a pattern in Scripture is that God will use one nation or one people to put some chastening on another people to bring them to what? Repentance. And that's what we see all through Scriptures. Um, the scripture, especially the Old Testament, is that this is used to wake people up, wake the nation of Israel up, wake up the, those that are, are living in an ungodly way. We know that Sodom is a wicked city. And we're going to be studying more about that. It's so wicked that God hears the cry of people that are being oppressed by Sodom and Gomorrah, and he is going to send in angels to bring judgment upon them. And it's almost like they're getting a wake-up call before that final judgment comes. God is sending these armies in and putting them in a desperate place, which should have called them to call upon the name of the Lord. As we're going to see, there's a witness of the true and living God in the land. There is Abram that's living in Hebron. There's Melchizedek who's living in Jerusalem as a priest of the Most High God. There is a testimony. There is a witness. Even Lot should have known to speak up at this point in time, but we hear nothing but silence. But this is representative of a truth that's important to us. And in Revelation chapter 3, we come to the church of Thyatira, and the Lord says, I gave you space to repent. It's like that mercy zone, right? It's a mercy zone where God is having mercy right now, and it's a time to repent. Because once that passes, then will come the chastening or even the, the judgment of the Lord. Christians are chastened. They are not judged. Jesus took the judgment on the cross for Christians. But he still chastens us. For whom he loves, he chastens. Maybe you're not a believer. And you're in that place. And if you were to pass away today and, and, and pass in this life, you would enter into eternal judgment. 
But God gives all of mankind this window, this space to repent. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I've heard about this judgment. I've heard about chastening. But I've been living my life in sin, and I've been doing this, and I've been doing that. And actually, I mean, things are going quite well in my life. And you misinterpret the long-suffering of God as approval for the way you've been living. Where in reality, what he's doing, he's sending in, you know, this, this, or he's giving you this time where you can repent, where you could get things right. I don't know what's happening in your life, but I will say this. That if you're not right with the Lord and you've not experienced the chastening or the hand of the Lord against you, this is your mercy zone. This is your opportunity to come and get it right with the Lord. God has no pleasure in bringing judgment upon even the wicked, let alone his chastening against his children. If you're in this place where you need to get things right, don't be like these nations that failed to see the significance of what is happening and to prepare themselves before a, a much worse outcome was uh, heading their way, which we'll get to probably around chapter 18. So they meet, they, they're overtaken, they, they fall in defeat, they run and they hide. And we come to verse 11 and 12, which is really why this account is even in Scripture. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, so all the food, and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. So now, nephew Lot, who is also a worshiper of the true and living God, and we know that he is called Righteous Lot in the New Testament, he is no longer dwelling near Sodom, is he? When we left him, I think it was in chapter 13, right, where they, they go their separate ways, and as you know, they have to part because the, the land is not able to support their livestock, Abram says, listen, let's not fight. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Lot looks up, he sees the plain of Sodom, flat, lush, pasture land. He says, well, I'm going there. And it says that he went and he placed his tent as far as Sodom. But he's not in Sodom at that point. But here in chapter 14, where is he? He's in the wicked city. He's in the original sin city, if you will. And, and this is, you know, somehow he seems to be able to hold up under this his family is going to be devastated as a result of all of this. But Lot is taken captive. And when you set yourself up right at the edge of wickedness, like, well, I'm not going to do this, but you set yourself right up there, it is so easy to be overtaken. It is so easy to be, you know, handled by the enemy. This is why Paul says to the Ephesians to not give place to the devil in your life. What's that? Don't give him a place to launch an attack against your life from. And when we make compromise and when we set up near places of wickedness and we can say, I'm never going to sin. I know who the true and living God is. I'm just going to be here. It's just more convenient. Whatever the rationale that Lot had was that, made, that moved him to inside the city and put himself in a very vulnerable position. And now he is taken captive. How many Believers have said, you know what, I'm going to just go, I'm, gonna, I'm like, I'm not going to go in Sodom. I mean, who would ever go in Sodom, right? I'm just going to get next to Sodom. I'm just going to be there because for my business, for my family, for family relationships, it just makes more sense. I'm going to be there. 
But then the next thing we read is that he's in Sodom. And actually, we can even back up as that he lifted his eyes towards Sodom. He saw Sodom. Then he decided to go to Sodom. And then he is living near Sodom. But now he is living in it. And this is what we all have to be aware of in our life. Is that subtle compromise. Making one bad decision. I can do this. I can live here. Well, yeah, okay. You can. And even Lot. New Testament. Called righteous Lot. But boy, there's a price to pay for that. And we needlessly bring harm into our lives by getting so close to the world. And we're going to see a contrast between him and Abraham in, in just a moment. But listen. Well, actually, let's just read it. Verses 13 through 16. We'll kind of... Uh, Marry these two portions together and just and make uh, continue developing this point about where we stand with the Lord. And here we see that Abram's going to come rescue Lot. It says, Then one of the one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, first mention of the word Hebrew in the Bible, just as a way to distinguish the ethnicity of uh, these uh, of the Jewish people. It says, For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite. The last time we read of this location, there at the end of chapter 13, Abram is worshiping there. This is the location of worship. It's the location of fellowship with God. Quite different than where Lot is inside of Sin City. And um, the trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshgal, and the brother of uh, Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house, his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, again, all the way back up to the north. Um, so they've gone from the north to the south, and now to track them down, he's got to head to the north. He divided his forces against them by night, so a night raid, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So Abram comes in to rescue. But what a contrast of guys. Contrast of believers. You have Abram who's still at the last place we saw him there at the trees of Mamre where he made his altar and he's worshiping. They come and they find him still in that place. Lot he just keeps moving further and further away. They had to separate, but the fact that he chooses the wicked place and then next to it and then in it is really part of uh, the reason why he's captured because he, he just got too close to the danger. How do you know when you're too close? <laughs> well, oftentimes it's not until we are captured where we are held, where we are making a mistake, we're doing the things that we swore that would never take place. Well, you know, I believe I can just live right there on the edge and I'll be fine because, you know, the Lord always provides a way of escape. That's what the Bible says. He always provides a way of escape that no temptation has overtaken us except is common and God always provides escape. That is a true verse. But do you know where Lot's escape was? It wasn't once he was dwelling in the city of Sodom and saying, oh, Lord, help me. The escape was, don't go into the city. It's when that thought came into his mind. This is a wicked town. You have no business intermingling with these people. That was his way of escape. It's like a person who sees signs that says detour ahead, construction ahead, unfinished road. 
And there's sign after sign, and they keep blowing by them. And eventually, they just end up in this accident, and then they're mad that they didn't have a way of escape. It's like, well, wait a minute, you blew by 10 of them. The way of escape from temptation is not when you're like five seconds away from committing the act and saying, oh, God, if you don't want me to do this, please stop me. That's just, that's not where your way of escape comes. Your way of escape came five days earlier when somebody said, I don't think that's a good trip you're going on. Why don't you just hang out with me? There's a men's conference. There's a a women's conference. There's something going on. We'll just spend some time catching up. That was your way of escape. It's when the Spirit of the Lord said, you have no business going there, and it's just in your mind, and yet you say no, but you're battling back and forth, and you eventually say yes. That was your way out. Not when you're five seconds from sinning. And so again, Paul says to the Ephesians, give no room for the devil. Don't give him a place to make an attack. Our lives should be like steep, slippery slopes for the enemy to try and assail. Because we have something that's worth preserving. It's our walk with the Lord. And so you, you, you need to walk wisely. You need to walk carefully. You need to walk, as it says, circumspectly. But there's... Faithful Abraham, following the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And so when the word comes to him about his nephew, Lot, who's taken captive and needs some help, his response is like, well, you know what it deserves? I mean, he gets what he deserves. I mean, he has, I told him, not that we have it, but you can just imagine. I'm just embellishing the storyline. You can imagine the kinds of thoughts that could go through a person's minds. Well, he went to Sodom. What did he think was going to happen in Sodom? Or I'm not going to risk my, my men. I'm not going to wor- risk my well-being. I'm not going to do this. I've got my own business to care for. You know, that's his mistake. That's his problem. That's on his head. We don't read any of that with Abram, do we? The word comes, and it's like before the guy's even finished, it's like the trumpet has already sounded and everybody's on their horses or their camels and they're ready to roll to go get nephew Lot. Galatians 6.1 gives us instruction about how we should be with one another in similar circumstances. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6.1. Somebody's overtaken in any trespass. It's just not the trespasses that seem to be palatable to you. Well, yeah, okay, I can kind of identify with that sin. No, it's, it's any trespass, any sin that would keep you from the Lord. And if you see somebody overtaken, you go and you get them. You, you, you pull the army together. You muster the troops. And you go after that sister. And you come to her and say, listen, we're, we're not willing to let you just go off and be taken captive. The Lord has a plan for your life. The Lord has saved you for good things. And we know that you're overtaken. But we love you. And by God's grace, we're not there. I mean, that's not the time when you say, I told you so. Okay? That's not the spirit of gentleness when you do that. The spirit of gentleness says... I know that that could have been me had I not made right, wise decisions in my walk with the Lord. And so where you are is a place I could easily be. So I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to to rescue you from this trouble. And this is what mom and dads do. Christian mom and dads do. They're talking to their kids. It's sometimes what kids are doing for mom and dad. 
or what a husband's doing for a wife or a wife is doing for a husband or brothers and sisters doing for one another. If you have somebody that has come after you because you've been overtaken, consider yourself loved. Now, maybe you may not like it. You may not like the fact that they're calling you back and they're saying that the things that you're engaged in are sinful and wrong. But listen, you've got a friend. You have a true friend. You have somebody that really loves you and cares for you. Again, I quoted this not uh, too many services ago, but you know, uh, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, right? An enemy will kiss you and say, yeah, you got plenty of room. Keep going, keep going, keep back up, back up, back up. Oh, you're fine, you got all day, and boom, you're off the cliff. The kisses of the enemy, telling you everything's okay when it's wrong. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend that says, if you take one more step, you're going to plummet to your death. What are you doing? Get over here. And this is what Abram is doing. He's going and he's rescuing Lot. This is what we need to do. If there's somebody on your heart and your mind that is in that place, go after them. I don't want to offend them. (laughs) Faithful are the wounds, offenses of a friend. Sometimes we have to go and say, this is a terrible way to be living your life. It's going to end in destruction. Come back to the good things of the Lord. Don't live there any longer. And you've got to know this. When somebody has walked away from the Lord and they're in that place they swore they would never be, the feeling that it's okay to come back is not one that's usually felt very often. It's one that's got to be spoken to them. And it's spoken to them. Yes, by the Spirit of the Lord can speak right to them, but it's, it's us speaking to one another. Maybe you know somebody like that. Go speak with them. Rescue them. Keep on reading in verses 17 through 20. And we, here we're introduced to Melchizedek. So the battle has happened. The armies come from the east. It's you know, smoked the, the battle of the coalition of Canaanite nations. They're now headed home. But what they don't know is that Abram and his 318 guys and a few other men with them, they're hot on their tail. They overtake them. They get all of the spoils back. They're now heading back down south again, okay? And they're going to come right to the city of Jerusalem. They don't go up in the city, but they're right down in the valley of the Kidron Valley. And the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley, Kidron Valley. And his return from the, de- the, the defeat of Kedorlaomer, and the kings were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, uh, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. 10% of everything that he had received, he gives to him. And so, and you're like, oh, here we go. We're in this message on tithing. I'm not going there. Okay? But the lesser gives to the greater. We give to the Lord of what we have because he's greater. So wait, did he, you hear me pray it almost every Sunday. Lord, we give as a way of just saying you are great and the work that you have is great. It's a way for us to make that, that, that comment. And so um, Abram is giving to one who is considered to be the greater, this 
this Melchizedek, king of Salem. It's just an interesting individual. Um, again, just the lay of the land. You all have probably seen the Dome of the Rock, that uh, uh, Muslim shrine that has a gold top uh, where uh, David's temple, Solomon's temple once was. If you go down just a short little drop into the valley, that is the Kidron Valley. If you go up just as you begin to ascend uh, the other side of Kidron Valley, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is considered the Mount of Olives. As you go up, you come to the, the top, the crest. It's all really tightly compacted area. And so Abram's coming through this way. And first, the king of Sodom and the other kings meet him and say, wow, this is great. Um, you know, we're so thankful um, for all that you've done. Uh, and, but Melchizedek is there as well. So there's this meeting. So who is this Melchizedek? There are three uh, views of who Melchizedek is. One view is that this was Shem, still alive. So one of the descendants of Noah. Okay? No biblical evidence for this. It's a Hebrew tradition, but that's one um, identifier. The other identifier is that he, this is actually a pre-incarnate, so before the Lord became uh, human, uh, there is a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord, and that is this Melchizedek. So this Melchizedek is not really a person. It's just the Lord appearing as a person. And there are times in the scriptures where there are Christophanies, Old Testament appearances of Christ. I don't believe this is one of them, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. I believe that this is, just as we read it here, it is a king, and he is uh, ruling and reigning over Salem, and that he is Jerusalem, and that he is a priest of the Most High God. But that this is an intriguing individual is without question. This is a foreshadowing of the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. It's so refreshing to read here that there's somebody else that's worshiping God. I mean, we've gone through um, Genesis, and it seems like there's very few that stand out. You know, you have... You have Abel, but he gets killed. You have Seth, but then his line gets corrupted. You have Noah. Um, and then after Noah, we come to Abram, and there's not many others that are, that are mentioned that I can think of, if any, until we get to Melchizedek. It's like, oh, wait a minute. There are still people worshiping God. There are still people that understand who the true and living God is, and they are worshiping. And no doubt... Um, this would have been the connection. And really, Jerusalem and Hebron are so close together, it's not unlikely to think that these two men didn't already know each other because of their like faith and passion, where it was so rare um, in the land of Canaan. So he comes to meet him. Um, in the book of Hebrews, so Melchizedek is mentioned again in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, it's written to Jews that have become Christians and they're following the Lord. But they're, they're encountering all kinds of persecution. Physical persecution, but also people just mocking them. They're no longer going to the temple. Um, and they're saying, like, how can you have a priest? You don't even have a priest anymore. And their response is, no, Jesus is our priest. So, well... He's a descendant of David. He's a king. He's in the kingly line, but he's not a descendant. He can't be a descendant of, you know, of Judah and a descendant of Levi at the same time. 
And it's through Levi that the priesthood is found. So he's not a son of Aaron. He can't be a priest. And so there's a questioning. And so the writer of Hebrews comes and says, the answer is this. He is a priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of who? Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus is a king, and he is a priest, and he is a faithful high priest over us, and so therefore he can atone, and he can be that mediator for us, which would have been a huge encouragement to these Jewish believers that knew the importance of a priest, but, you know, families saying he's not of the tribe of Levi. He can't be. And now they're given an answer. Let me read to you a portion of this. It's from Hebrews 5, verses 6 through 10. And he also says in another place, that would be Psalm 110, verse 4, and he quotes, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up his prayers and supplications, so we're talking about Jesus, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 10. Called by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we have this, I mean, a couple of verses that are placed here in chapter 14 that are so easy to read over and not catch the significance until you make it until, uh, until you come to Psalm 110 where you're given a little pause that there's a, a priest and he is forever. And then when you get to Hebrews where uh, the writer makes it clear of the connection of Melchizedek and Jesus. In Hebrews 7.3 at the end it says that of Melchizedek that he is like the Son of God. Or that some translations will say, he resembles the Son of God, which means he is not the Son of God. He's only like him. He's a type of him. He is not him. And so there are some similarities. And, and the writer of Hebrews chapter 7 uh, picks up on the fact that we have no um, information about Melchizedek the king in chapter 14 we don't know where he came from. We don't have a record of his death. And he said, well, that's kind of like Jesus, who's eternal. So there's some similarities. He's a type, but that I would say he is not actually him because this is one who had a role and he had a, an identified uh, kingdom and he had an identified ministry. One thing that you may find interesting, I found it very interesting, when we were in Israel two years ago, our guide, who is a, a very well-known um, archaeologist, he oversaw the digs in the city of David for years, and he also is the one who found the Pool of Siloam and many other um, discoveries. When we were talking on the bus ride, he says, yeah, he goes, I found the, the Temple of Melchizedek. I said, what? I'm not, I'm not easily convinced. I said, what? You found the Temple of Melchizedek? He goes, I have found it. And I said, because of a previous conversation, I go, well, what's your proof? And um, so we began to talk back and forth, and I'm like, I don't know. He goes, you don't believe me? And I'm like, I, I mean, I believe in Melchizedek. I just don't know if you found it. He goes, I'll take you there. So we, the team that was with us, we got a special VIP tour and got to go down into an area that's not open to the, the public. Some people can take trips, but it's usually through him. 
and you can go. And he took us down into this area, a small area, not much bigger than the, the small stage that I'm on right here. And there's different compartments. And he says, this is the area, and he goes through all of his evidence. I don't have the time to do it. It's, it's, I'm not fully convinced. But where you are is you're right on the side of um, the Kidron Valley. And you're about halfway down into the Kidron Valley where this location is. And in this location, there's a place where they, there was an altar. There's a place for making oil. There's a place for um, uh, making wine. And there was a place where they could sacrifice animals and, and a channel where the blood would flow through. And it goes through all the details of, of this. And it's quite interesting because when Melchizedek comes out, he comes bringing what? Bread and wine. And he brings the wine from this, um, you know, from this city. And this guy is saying, see, the wine press is right here. And he goes through more detail than that. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is a fun um, thought to consider that you're standing in the place where Melchizedek might have actually worshipped the one true and living God. But we know this for certain, that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. And what does he bring out? He brings bread and wine. Now, in Scripture, bread and wine doesn't have much significance yet. It will gain its meaning and significance as we go through the Passover in Exodus and you go through the bread in the wilderness, the manna that's being provided and so forth. But what does Jesus who is a priest according to the Melchizedek, tell us to do every time we get together and remember him, is that we are to eat of the bread and we are to drink of the wine. And so we see this, this again, this foreshadowing of what's going to take place. It'd be wrong to call this a communion service, okay? Not enough has happened in history yet to make this a communion service, but you see the elements of what is going on. And so we have a faithful high priest. Um, Melchizedek is found um, and writings are found about him in um, extra-biblical writings. The Hasmoneans, who were a, a priestly royal family that ruled over Israel in the intertestamental period, claimed they had a right to rule and reign, even though they weren't from the tribe of Judah and they weren't descendants of David. They said they had a right to rule and reign as priestly kings because they were of the order of, who do you think? Melchizedek. That's not biblical, but that's the way they did it. Another group that you're more familiar with in the Hasmoneans was the Sadducees said the same thing. They said they, they were order of the, uh, of the order of the Melchizedeks. Another place where we find writings about them is in the Qumran cave scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they, in their writings, they say that Melchizedek was Michael the archangel who was going to come in the reign of the, Messian, uh, of the Messiah and he would be liberating people and that he was the heavenly high priest um, to whom he made offerings for the angel's sins. Don't buy any of it. But this is the point of even mentioning it. When the author of Hebrews writes about Melchizedek, this was a talked about person. This was a talked about subject. They had a little bit of stuff in, in a few verses in Scripture, but then the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, blows up the understanding and gives a proper uh, uh, 
commentary on who Melchizedek, Melchizedek is. And I encourage you to read those chapters of 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Hebrews. Let's finish here. Verse 21, we read about the king of Sodom. Um, so here he is again. He comes to Abram, verse 21. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, uh, I've had a conversation with God about you. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only that the young men who have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram realized and was warned by the Lord, don't take anything from this guy because he's, wanted, he's going to want to steal glory from me for having blessed you. Not every time somebody offers you something should you take it. You've got to be discerning. We've got to be patient. We've got to be aware. Sometimes it's a trap. Sometimes it's an opportunity for the glory of God to be diminished in your life because people are just seeking that attention for themselves. And Abram is warned by the Lord, and he says, I don't want any of this stuff. All glory goes to God. So in this chapter, we see those that are in the will of God, in fellowship at the trees of Mamre, that place of worship. They're protected. They can rescue. But then you have others that are living in a dangerous place, Sin City, and they fall easily into the enemy's tactics. There's a time to repent. There's that mercy zone when the Lord is warning and trying to wake us up that we need to make certain that we come to the Lord and we do the right thing. And we have a faithful high priest in Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, who has suffered and died. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's also called the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace. And you can't have the peace of God until you have experienced the righteousness of God in your life, that forgiveness that he provides for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you give, that you have sent your son to be that atoning sacrifice for us that we might be made righteous. And having been made righteous, Lord, we have peace. We have peace with you. We have the peace that you give to us. And we are so grateful for that.